<clears throat> All right, you guys are tough act to follow. <clears throat> that was uh, Winter Retreat Relive 2. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you, guys. Give you a minute to quiet down. All excited. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles or on your phones or in the Pew Bible uh, to Zechariah chapter 14. As we read, and we're wrapping up our short series in the book of Zechariah. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 today. Jesus is coming. Beginning at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as, he, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, when will you come? Lord, will we be ready? Well, Lord God, help us to be ready and to prepare the ways so others can be ready too. So take your word this morning and use it to change the way we think and how we live as you promised to do in your people. Make us holy and beautiful a beautiful bride for you, we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So God the Spirit moves Zechariah in his closing chapters to give a message, two messages, two oracles, and they were called burdens or weighty messages. And the first message we looked at last week briefly, chapters 9, 10, and 11, was a message given to the Gentiles. It, it begins with mentioning Gentile cities and kingdoms, so the focus was on the Gentile nations, although the Jewish people were mentioned there. But we know that this oracle 
This last oracle in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is given to Israel, to the people of Israel. That's what it says. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel in chapter 12, verse 1. These chapters are really challenging. The whole book is. Uh, Martin Luther, by the way, uh, Zechariah's hard to read and understand. Sometimes don't be bothered by that because Martin Luther, who was never at loss for words, said when he read chapter 14 of Zechariah, and I quote, here in this chapter, I give up. <laughs> for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. <laughs> So that should give us great comfort. And some of us might be thinking, well, if a guy like Martin Luther doesn't get it, you know, why don't we just give up and go home? We were joking about that. A day like no other, no sermon. Let's just, we're done. No, we're not going to do that. But there's great truth here. So I hope in some way there, as we kind of wrap things up, we take some key truths away of God's messages to us about what's coming and as we discover those truths and reflect on them, that they'll change how we live, that our outlook will be different because we've read the book of Zechariah. And I would just suggest the next time, if you're reading through the Bible and, you, and you're reading through the book of Daniel with all its visions and things, just take a pause in your scheduled reading and read the book of Zechariah with Daniel and then the book of Revelation. And there's some things that will begin to click. When Jesus Christ returns in glory and power to rescue his people, to make Jerusalem holy and its citizens gloriously pure, like he is, it's going to be a day like no other. The Lord transforms his people. Let's quickly look at chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering or of reeling to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. I love the way God starts this, prof, uh, this last oracle because he brings attention to who he is. Don't forget who's declaring these things are about to happen. We just read in chapter 14 that the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. Is that really going to take place? Well, I'm not going to tell you it is or it isn't. But I do know the God who made the heavens and the earth, who made the soul and spirit of every person so he knows us because he's made us. He can do that. And God wants to remind Jerusalem and the people of Judah and Israel and, and all the Gentile nations that our God, the God who made this world, started it and he's going to finish it. He's going to wrap things up his way. 
God is stretching is literally in the Hebrew present tense. He's stretching out the heavens. He's establishing the earth. He is making the spirits of people. It's just pointing out that this God is personally involved. He didn't wind the world up and step back, or, or he doesn't come back once in a while, replace the battery in the clock, or he doesn't uh, put a charger in the wall to recharge the battery. It's, he's involved with it. He's intimately working and at work all the time. Preserving it is probably a good way to look at it. He is here and he's at work. And all things were created by him and through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So if the triune God, Father, and Son, and Spirit, if they stop their personal hands-on care, everything would be gone. He just wants to remind us about that. So when we read these prophecies and we think it sounds impossible that the Mount of Olives could be split, or who would have thought after 2,000 years that the Jewish people would ever come back to the land of Israel as a nation? Is God's plan to make Jerusalem the center of worship to all the nations by having the stiff-necked Jewish people come back and some of them, a remnant, come and believe and have faith? If that's what he wants to do, he can do it. I have hope in that. There's lots of reasons, and I don't want to go into it, to it all. We don't have time and But listen to Romans chapter 11. Speaking to Gentile believers, Paul just says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Is God done with the Jewish nation? Have they just been wrapped into the promises of the church, this church age? Some people believe so. Some good people believe so. But I think there's promises yet to be kept. There's too many mentions of the lineage of David and Judah and repeated mention of Jerusalem and the land surrounding it. It just points to the future for a Jewish people to be refined and glorified by God because he has the power to do it. Does Matt Meter's view of the future all going to come true? Don't lean on me. I don't know for sure. But I do say this with confidence today. The God who says he's going to do these great things will accomplish them in some way or form that's amazing to the world, amazing to his children. The God who rescues people from the wages of sin loves to take enemies and make them into godly, kind, and gentle people. The God loves to take weak and trapped sinners, powerless to overcome the things they want to overcome. 
He loves to take them and give them new life and the power to have victory, to overcome their weaknesses and all their sin and all their bad choices and to begin to be changed and and to overcome all the hurts that other people brought into their lives because God through Christ will make you and me and his people triumphant the way Jesus is triumphant, dead and raised to life. I hold tightly to Philippians 1.6. How about you? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's true for his church. It's true for the people of Israel. Let's just real quickly, I've been hanging out there a long time in chapter 12, just real quickly. Look, first thing we do is we notice God will make Israel strong. In verses 2 through 5, I read those verses. There's going to be this great war when the nations come against Jerusalem and God is going to make them strong. They're going to be a reeling cup. It's like somebody drinks them and they get drunk. They're going to get overwhelmed. They're going to be like a rock. Have you ever run into a rock, a big rock? You get hurt. Israel's going to be an immovable rock. If you try to lift it, you're going to hurt yourself. Israel's going to be secure. In verse 6, it says they're going to be like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. You can picture that. The world's going to go up in flames if they come against God's people. The angel of the Lord, it says in those verses 6 through 12, is going to come and protect them the way he protected David. And we know God was with David. I mean, he defeated Goliath, and he went out and he was a great warrior for God, and he did great things by the power of God. Not only that, but in verses 10 it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then it talks about mourning. God's going to pour out a spirit of grace because he's protecting his people. He's going to make them strong. He's setting them apart. It's a work of God. God will pour out his spirit of grace and pleas of mercy on his people. When God pours, you get soaked. You get drenched. You overflow with grace and might and power. That's how God works. He loves to do that. And God always has to take the first step. Return to me, Zechariah 1.3, and I will return to you. Here's that invitation. Come and know me. We love him because he first loves us, the apostle John wrote. All these Jewish people here, it says, are going to be mourning. It says the house of David's going to be mourning. The house of Nathan, the house of Levi, the house of Shimei. House of David's the kingly line. All those people are going to be mourning as they see Jesus coming back. The house of Nathan, the prophetic line, is going to be mourning. The house of Levi, the priestly line. The house of Shimei is the scribal line. Those who recorded the scriptures. Why all the mourning? Because they recognize at this moment that they've rebelled against the one who came to save them. They're weeping because they know their sin. 
all the hurt they brought on to the world. And it's a work of God. When God pours out his spirit, there's a huge and great revival that happens. What happened because they rejected Christ, the Jewish nation? They were scattered. It's interesting, when the Spirit of God came on the day of Pentecost, the exact opposite happened. 3,000 got saved in one day. Amazing things happen when God pours out his Spirit, when the breath of God, the Spirit of God blows. The work of the Spirit puts all our boasting aside. So God Almighty delivers his people. That's chapter 12. If you remember nothing else from chapter 12 of Zechariah, just read verse 1 and let it stimulate your thinking about who God is and what he's going to do to rescue his people, what he has done to save them through Christ coming and dying for our sins. He makes his people strong. He defends his people. He empowers his people. He saves us from sins. He's defeated our enemies. We're secure. We're strong. When the pierced one, Jesus Christ, reappears, it's going to be like a day like none other. In chapter 13, though, we move on. The Lord cleanses his people. He not only defends his people, transforms his people, he cleanses them. There really shouldn't be a chapter 13, okay? Uh, it's all tied together, the, the word there, on that day. It starts chapter 13, it's mentioned in chapter 12. On that day, God's going to do great work. So it's just talking about the same thing. They're all linked together. And what does it say? On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I also will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to see, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if you, one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friend. God provides a cleansing fountain. What's that all about? Well, it's just a picture of cleansing. The God uses water to picture and to clean the world. What happened at Noah's flood? The world was cleansed. There was a cleansing. Water pictures cleansing, and God's going to pour out water. David wrote in Psalm 36, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Ezekiel mentions the same event or near events. In chapter 36, he writes, or he wrote, I will take you from the nations, speaking to, of the Jewish people, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will, 
I will put within you and I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's grace is being poured out here and making his people clean. They're mourning their sin and then he cleans them up. I call it the Isaiah pattern. A lot of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. It's where the prophet Isaiah has this amazing vision of God in his temple up in heaven. And the angels are around him, the cherubim, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They never stop saying that. And it's thunder and there's smoke and everything's shaking. And Isaiah's response is what? Woe is me (laughs) because I'm unclean. My lips are unclean, and I live among people whose lips are unclean, which just means from the heart we speak words and think thoughts that are unclean and filthy, and we're a mess and we're in trouble. And then what did God graciously do? He took a hot coal and put it on his lips, signifying that refining fire that cleans, that makes them whole again. And that's what's happening here. When Jesus appears... When you saw Jesus, you saw his holiness and his purity and his goodness. And you realized how unclean you were and how unclean your heart was and your thoughts were and your life was a mess and you needed a Savior who was able to give you strength to help you overcome and he alone could provide it. And you cried out for mercy and he gave it and he made you his child. He made you clean. Come back to Zechariah 1.3. Return to me, and I will return to you, and I will live with you and dwell with you forever until the end of the age, Jesus said when he went up to heaven. So he's present with us not only spiritually, but our, God's presence is going to be physical one day. in a body, a resurrected body that's going to see him and walk with him and talk with him and touch him and worship him. It's all real. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and what am I going to do? I'm going to take you to what? To be with me. We're going to be in his presence, and that's what's happening here. When Israel returns to the Lord, when the Lord graciously gives them his grace and pours out his spirit on them, they're going to see their sin and they're going to recognize who Jesus is and they're going to return to him on that one great day. He's going to banish all idols from the land. Their names are going to be forgotten. False prophets who advertise bad ideas, false ideas, who lied, are going to be removed. Think the Garden of Eden. No more devil, no more temptations, no more things impure, nothing dragging us away from our God. It's all going to be gone in God's kingdom. Chapter 13, verse 7, it says, something changes. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered 
and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. There's a shift here. This isn't always chronological in the book of Zechariah. But the shepherd is Jesus Christ, and he was struck. And he fulfilled that prophecy. He told the disciples on the night he was betrayed, this very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So the 11 disciples did scatter that night. When Saul who was not yet Paul the Apostle, was persecuting the church. He was striking at Jesus Christ, and they were scattered. The Jews have been scattered because they've rejected Christ. They struck the shepherd. And it seems to me there's going to be a future terrible day of suffering. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And then we add Matthew chapter 24 to that. For then there will be a great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. I may be way off, but I just don't see how the worst of all time, worldwide, at the same time, tribulation has happened yet. But here's what we do know. The Lord keeps his promise to rescue, to cleanse, to deliver. The great shepherd of the sheep will not lose any of his sheep. And even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will be in his presence. The Lord, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is transforming and cleansing his people and making them more than conquerors in Christ. There's nothing powerful enough to separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword. So the Lord, the Lord changes people. He transforms people. He cleanses his people. He reshapes them and makes them new. And the Lord reigns in chapter 14. It's a consummation of all things. Jerusalem's desperate. We read those verses earlier in our scripture reading. They're surrounded by the nations. There's this final battle. The Mount of Olives is split and there's fleeing. And we wonder, how can all this really take place? Well, just remember, I don't know how it's all going to work out, literally, figuratively, however it's going to work out, but we do know that the God who made heaven and earth and all people is in control, and he will accomplish what he plans. Remember who God is. And he lists a lot of blessings in chapter 14. 
I want to focus on those as we think about this day that's like no other. Verse 6, on that day there shall be no light. No need for the sun because God will be coming in all his glory and that'll be the light. And it will neither be hot nor cold nor frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light because God will be present. God will be at work. It's one of his attributes. And then there's water. Verse 8, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. Literal water? Figurative water, refreshing the soul, giving life. I say, why not both? (laughs) And there'll be a holy king present in verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Everything's going to be changed. Then comes the end, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then there's a description in verse 10, 11, and in verses 10 and 11, about the new Jerusalem, the holy city. Never to be destroyed, never to be insecure again. Then God talks about devastated enemies in chapter, or in verses 12 through 19. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. This is gross. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. What is God trying to tell us here? That those who reject Christ and fight against God's people, their boastful eyes that had planned to take Jerusalem and all the riches and destroy are going to be judged. The tongues that wagged and bragged and boasted about how they were going to conquer and win and split up the booty and just reject God. Think Psalm 2. Reject the Savior and, and do their own thing. That tongue will be judged. There's going to be a panic. It was mentioned in chapter 12, verse 3. They're going to all be destroyed. And those who survive, verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 is going to come true. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And if they refuse, they will be judged. The shepherd who allowed himself to be struck and, and, and die for the world's sins will be worshipped and given the worship he deserved. Look at verses 20 through the end of the book. And on that day, the day that's like no other, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifices in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Common everyday things are going to be set apart to the Lord. 
So you know that fork I eat with that has a bent tongue? Every common day things are going to be special, useful, bring glory to God. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Do you know, believer, your destiny is holiness? Let that sink in. Pure, clean, no guilt, in perfect harmony with our God. And there's only one way to be destined for holiness. To be made righteous by the one who is holy. God made him who had no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Have you believed? Will you believe? And will you live for righteousness? Zechariah gives us so many great truths of hope, counsel from God to return to him in trusting belief, and he will return to us and bless us. Counsel from God to his gathered people to be strong and keep to the work. In Zechariah's day, it was build the temple. In our day, it's make disciples. So be, let's be busy about the work. Christ is willing and has made us strong. He's made us his children. He's called us his sons and daughters. He's given us the spirit. The gates of hell can't prevail. So let's be busy. It's going to be a day like no other when Jesus returns. So knowing that Jesus wins, it's kind of a cliche, It should lead me to holiness. So what does righteous living look like in my home? Holy living look like in my home? What's it look like in how I interact with my coworkers and what I say? What's it look like and how do I treat those people in the other cubicle or by the locker next to me in the school hallway? How does it change how I think and move and live? Because Jesus is coming back and we see the terrible devastation on those who reject him. But what about those who received him? What he's given us to do to, be, to bring uh, mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly before our God? What does it mean? Let's surrender to God and be vessels that bring hope into our world because there are a lot of people that have no hope. Wherever we are, wherever we work, wherever we live. Amen. We're going to come and pray corporately now. So, Lizette, I'm going to ask you and your team to come up.